Here at New Life Church, you may have already been hearing as we were singing these songs the kinds of things that we believe. We believe that we uh, serve a great and awesome God. We believe that He created heaven and earth in the beginning and that He made all things good. We believe that He created mankind in His image to uh, know Him, to love Him, to be loved by Him, and to uh, continue in His life-giving, creating efforts. He created them uh, to care for a perfect garden, and everything was beautiful and everything was wonderful in the world that God created. But He gave man free will. He allowed them uh, to make decisions of their own. And in doing that, he gave them an ability to sin, and they did. And when they began to sin and turned away from him, then uh, that brokenness entered the world, and uh, sin's effects entered the world, and sin's consequences entered the world. And there has been strife and suffering and death since then. But God, seeing that, knowing that even in advance, already had a plan for how he was going to deal with that, and he sent his son to die on the cross. That's what we were just singing about. That the death of Jesus on the cross, though it was meant to be a defeat, was in fact a victory, because Jesus died the death that we deserve for our sins, and imparts to us his righteousness so that we might have eternal life, restored life, as it was intended, created, designed to be that restored life again with God from now until eternity for anyone who would believe in Jesus as their Savior. That's what we believe. And because of that, uh, we want to talk this morning about uh, God as a creating, life-giving, life-sustaining God and what that means for us as his people. As his people, we then are to follow in his footsteps to be a creative, life-giving people. Okay, And so if you would turn with me to the book of Matthew, we're going to continue our series as we're uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus. He's gone up this mountain. He's taken uh, some disciples or, or would uh, po- potential disciples with him up onto this mountain. He sat down with them and he is explaining to them what his new kingdom will look like. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. This is what it means to have Jesus be the king, though not all of that is quite explicit yet. And then here's what it means to be God's kingdom people. Okay, so he's up there and he's doing that. And and I just want to review very quickly last week. Because he stood up or he, he was sitting there and talking with them and he said, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one tiny letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all takes place. Therefore, whoever abolishes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, this person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are the most religious people. They are, in uh, worldly terms, the most righteous people. They had the strictest laws for themselves, rules for themselves on how they must live, and they would adhere to those things so that they would be righteous. And what Jesus is saying is, I am setting the bar really high. I'm setting the bar really high because the people that you think have the highest moral standards, you think they are the most righteous people you know, it's not even close to high enough. That's the setup now for these next several weeks as we look at how high is this bar that Jesus is talking about. And here comes the first part. For you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He he starts with this. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, some of you may uh, have already heard these words before. You might be familiar with these words. These were the words that were said to those of old, that Jesus is just referring to. You know, it was said one time somewhere, you shall not murder. Anybody happen to know off the top of your head where it says that? Somewhere in Exodus, great. Yeah, so Moses leads his people out of Egypt, out of slavery to Egypt, and then goes, uh, um, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and is hearing direct from God how God wants his people to live, right? And he writes those down, these rules, we call them the Ten Commandments, and he comes down with the Ten Commandments, and one of those commandments is, you shall not murder, So we're not just talking about, you know, it was said one time a long time ago. We're talking about God's direct words through Moses to his people. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Don't kill people. I am a life-giving God. And we believe, everybody knows murder is wrong, right? You You don't do that. You don't take another person's life from them. You don't do that. And this is God's law to his people. He he writes it down. What should be self-evident, he writes down for us. Thou shalt not murder. And he, he passes that down, right? So Jesus is now saying, okay, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, You you shall not murder. That was the, the command from God. And then what they said is, okay, now, if you do murder, then you will be judged. Right? You will be judged, you will be tried, you will be convicted. There will be consequences because of your murdering. Now, Jesus wants to... Um, help us understand that this is not just a legalistic um, understanding of what God said, right? That, That we are not just to take, you shall not murder, and go, okay, well, I didn't murder, so I'm okay, right? All I did was beat him within an inch of his life, 
but I didn't murder him. I didn't murder him. All right? Maybe not the best thing to do, but I didn't kill him. Well, I just beat him up real good, but I didn't kill him. Well, I just, I just attacked him, but I didn't kill him. Right? We, could, we could back it up and back it up. How, how far, Jesus, do we need to back this up? And Jesus goes straight to the heart. He goes straight to the heart and goes, I want to say to you, but I say to you. So you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoops. We just backed that thing way up. We just backed it way up. He drew that line. He put that bar. It was like, thou shalt not murder. And I think maybe everybody in this room could clear that bar, right? Thou shalt not murder, hopefully. And what he did is he took the bar from down here where anybody could step over that thing and he put it way up here. I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. What, why is that? Because Jesus is going straight from the command itself, you shall not murder, and is now drilling in to our heart righteousness. Our heart attitudes, the intent of our heart and the desires of our heart. And he's drilling right in and going, my kingdom people should be a people who are after my own heart. And so we're not merely talking about the outward, did we kill someone? But rather, all the way to the heart, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? What is it that you are leaning in toward? What is it that you are pursuing? Because he says, those who are pursuing righteousness, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness are going to be satisfied. And so what I want from you, Jesus is saying to his disciples, is I want from you to desire righteousness. And that doesn't mean just not murdering or not sinning, but rather pursuing me and desiring me. And what I want, what I love, is to give life. I love to see people thrive. I love to see people flourish. I love to see people who are doing well. I want to be life-giving, and I want my people to be life-giving. But when we have anger, when we back up that uh, we didn't kill them, we just beat them really bad, okay, we, did, we just hit them, okay, we didn't quite hit them, we just verbally assaulted them, we just attacked them, we were just angry, we just back it all the way up, and when we back, back up, back up, back up, back up, we get to, I was just angry with them. I was just angry with them. In fact, in the very beginning, in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he, he built, made Adam and Eve in his image to be like him and to love him. And then sin entered the world and they had two kids. It only took two kids in the world. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, his brother, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It took one generation of sin. And we got the first murder. Brother murdering brother because he was angry and jealous of him. But listen to how God talks with him, right? Because it says the angry, uh, the angry, that Cain was very angry and his fa- face fell. And here was the Lord's response to Cain. He sees Cain's anger. He sees Cain's frustration. And what does he say? Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why are you angry with your brother? It's not even your brother's fault. It's your own fault. You you did this. But if, if you do well, you'll be accepted too. Why are you angry? I want you to know this though. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. Your sin is crouching at the door. Your sin is against you. And you you have to master it. You have to get it under control. You have to bring it back into line. Because just like we serve a life-giving God, and so we are radically for life, What that means is not just that we don't murder, but that we want for life for people. We want them to thrive. We want them to flourish. And when the anger rises up within us, its desire is to uh, control us. And so we begin to move in a... um, life-destroying way, right? Ultimately, you get to murder, and that is life-destruction at its ultimate end. But even before that, the intent, the anger that rises up when you are angry at someone else or with someone else, that is a life-destroying attitude, 
position that you are taking. You are setting yourself up as an enemy with them. You're setting yourself up to destroy them. Oh, you're probably not going to take it all the way to murder. But if we drill in right into the heart, what is the desire? What is the attitude? What is the posture that we're taking? We have to be so careful about that. Has anybody, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'll just raise my hand for you, okay? Has anybody ever done something that they didn't want to really do, that you regretted having done, that you wouldn't have done except that you were angry? That this guy is one. We, we don't think well when we're angry. We don't respond as we intend to respond. We don't respond according to who we believe we are, according to our own character. We don't do what we intend or think that we would or should do. But when we are angry, suddenly all of that is gone. All of that self-control, all of those desires of the heart that we normally have, just gone because of the rage that builds up within us. And we're not even talking about like huge things, right? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. All we did was insult them. All we did was call them a fool. Literally a moron. That's the Greek term. I just said you're an idiot. But it sets us up in this attacking posture that is not consistent with the life-giving God that we serve. This idea, I just want to acknowledge this morning, that this idea that anger is sin is radical. It is radically countercultural. Right now, if you want to demonstrate to people that you are righteous, you demonstrate that by anger. You, isn't that crazy? We demonstrate our righteousness by anger? Yes, because if I'm not angry, how would you know that I'm passionate about this? How would you know that I really believe this if I'm not angry with you? The only way you could possibly know that I'm serious about this is if I lay into you and berate you and insult you. That's how you know that I'm serious. That's how you know that I mean it. That's how you can tell how righteous I am. 
Listen to the commentaries. Listen to people who talk about those people who are so unrighteous and hear their own unrighteousness coming out in their very words, in their very attitude, in their very posture. We live in a broken world, in a broken time. In a place where people are so against other people that they want to destroy them. Sometimes, literally, sometimes taking it all the way to murder. And we wonder, how could it have gone like that? These are people that I agree with. These are people that I align with. We're the righteous ones. How did it get all the way to them throwing sticks and stones? How did it go all the way to them attacking? How did it go all the way to them threatening their lives? It is because the attitude was already there from the beginning. The attitude is already there in that we have sides. And what it means for me to be on my side and you to be on your side is that I am against you. We are so broken. Our culture is so broken. And it is so hard right now to find people, to find influences, to find groups that we can be a part of where anger is not the predominant attitude of the group. The defining thing about that says, this is who we are. Who we are is we are angry at them. It defines us. We want to be a life-giving people. Because we serve a life-giving God who does not want to see us attacking and opposed and destroying one another. We have to be like Cain. Having God remind us sin is crouching at the door and it wants to master you. It wants to control you. It wants you to do destructive things. And if all it can manage is to get you to destroy someone emotionally, sin considers that a win. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus has raised the bar way up here. How do we, how do we fight this urge? How do we fight this urge to be angry? Just verses before. As Jesus was setting up the whole sermon, he just listed, these are the kinds of people who are blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the ways that we give life. 
These are the ways that we live as God's kingdom people, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we are merciful. Wouldn't you so much rather have someone say of you, they are so merciful than they are so righteously angry? They are so merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you want to be called one of God's children, then we should be the peacemakers. We should be drawing people together. Making peace with them. Here's how he goes on in verse 23 to talk about this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer the gift. Think now of, of, you've made a trek, right? You've made a trek. Jesus is, is, is teaching here. Let's say he, he takes his disciples and they make this trek down to, uh, from Galilee down to uh, Jerusalem where they're going to make an offering. They're going to make an offering at the temple and they get all the way to the temple. They have prepared the offering. They have done everything. They bring it in to offer this sacrifice before the Lord and they, they go to hand the, the, um, the, this offering to the priest And they recall that there's this dispute between them and their brother. There's this issue of tension. Maybe I've done something and it has offended them. Maybe I have done something and I have been wrong to them. And here I am. I'm going to present this offering to God and bring my worship to God. And I remember that I have this division with my brother. He says, then what you should do is you should just leave it and go be reconciled with your brother and then come back. Well, Jesus, you know what? I I really appreciate the idea, man, but um, it's a long trip and I already went to all the work of of, uh, preparing the offering and so here I am to do the offering. How about this? How about this? I'll just repent, me before God here, and, and, uh, and let you know, God, that I'm, I intend to make this right. I'm going to make my offering here, and then I'll go reconcile with my brother later. Just go, no, time out. Why are you here giving your offering when you have this division between you and your brother? First, go and deal with that. First, go and deal with the the sin that you know is there, the tension that you know is there. Then come. Then come and worship me freely. Then come and your sacrifices will be acceptable to me. In several places in the prophets, the the prophets uh, condemn the Israelites because they're saying, you're making all of these sacrifices and they mean nothing. In Isaiah, uh, God says to his people, would you please stop with the sacrifices already? Please stop. Because it's all form for you. 
There's no heart attitude there at all. It's all just form. You're just doing this as this religious performance, disconnected completely from your heart attitude. And so what Jesus is saying here is the same idea. Why would you come to worship God? Why would you come to offer your sacrifices to Him without being reconciled to your brother? If you have division there, deal with that. That's not to say you shouldn't come into this place. That isn't to say you have to be perfect before you can come into this place to worship. But it is saying that what our relationships with other people, the way that we relate to them, the way that we connect to them, impacts the way that we are connected here. And so often people are going, man, I just come in and I go, I go to worship God and I just, I just don't feel anything. I don't hear anything. I don't, like, I, I just, eh. How are you doing with other people? How are you doing with your spouse? Is there division there? How are you doing with your brother or your sister? Is there division there? How are you doing with the people that are sitting on the other side of the church? Is there division there? How are you doing with your neighbor? Go see if you can reconcile with them. You see, this isn't just something that we talk about. When we talk about having a transformed life, when we talk about wanting to live new, reborn, spiritual lives to God, we're not just talking about it as though in some esoteric terms. Like, like this is just this, this theoretical thing that happens where in reality I just live my life as normal, but then in, in some spiritual realm somewhere uh, everything is just perfect and righteous. No, we, we believe that this has an impact on our lives in the here and now as well. That when we give our lives to God, that when we ask Him to forgive us of our sins, that then the Holy Spirit is at work within us and transforms us. And so we have to do some hard things. And one of those hard things is asking for other people to forgive us. If we remember that our brother, that's the way he talks about it here, if we remember that our brother has something against us, then we need to go and ask for their forgiveness. It's much easier for me to just come into church and pray, God, would you forgive me? I wronged my brother. And God says, I can forgive you for that. Repent. Yes, God, that's what I'm doing. I'm here before you. I'm repenting of my sin. No, you're not. No, you're telling me you're repenting, but you're not actually repenting because if you were repenting, if you wanted to live differently, then what you would do is you would go to your brother and you would ask them for their forgiveness. You would tell them that you know that you wronged them. You would seek to be reconciled to your brother. Oh God, that's hard. That would be so embarrassing, God. I can't, I can't do that. What are you doing here then? What are you doing here? Telling me that you're repenting. What are you doing here? Telling me that you want to be forgiven when you're unwilling to go to your brother. 
Leave the offering here. Go first be reconciled to your brother. If you know that there is division there, this isn't just that we want to... um, Hang on, I, I have this really great quote that they said it better than I did. The meaning of reconciliation is not to uproot all the bad feelings from your chest, but to dig up from your brother's mind any complaint that he has against you. That's David Brown, for those of you that wanted that. The meaning of reconciliation is not to uproot all the bad feelings from your chest, but to dig up from your brother's mind any complaint that he has against you. You see, if I'm trying to be reconciled with somebody, I'm not just trying to feel better about what I did to them. That's what happens when I come into church and I ask God, would you forgive me? That I'm looking for, to feel better about what I did. I feel guilty, I don't want to feel guilty anymore, so God, would you forgive me so I don't feel guilty about what I did? No, go. Be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to your neighbor. Be reconciled to your coworker. Go, ask their forgiveness. What if they refuse? What if they won't forgive me? That's okay. Really and truly, that's okay. Your righteousness is not dependent on their response. They don't have to be merciful toward you. They don't have to be gracious toward you. But when you repent and go and ask to be reconciled and ask to be forgiven and tell them, I know that this is what I did and I know that it was wrong, then you have done all that is possible. And now you can come back and say, God, I have, I have done what I could to be at peace with them. I have sought to understand why they are offended with me, why they are angry with me. I have sought to understand the totality of what it is that I have done, how I have sinned against them. And I have asked for their forgiveness for that. And I have sought to be reconciled to my brother, and now I am here to worship you. You see, it is, it's easy to be angry with somebody. It's difficult to murder somebody, and it's nearly impossible to be reconciled to them. It's really hard. Just allowing the anger to rise up within us and control us and do whatever it is that we end up doing, that's easy. What's really hard is afterwards to go, oh no, I was totally out of line. I need to go and be reconciled. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus says, this is serious stuff. 
When you have people who are accusing you, look, you're talking about you've come before the altar. You've come before the judge himself. Before you get there, first go be reconciled. If you have somebody who's an accuser, somebody who's an enemy, somebody who's against you, see if you can reconcile with them before you get to the judge. Once they've invested in lawyers, once you get before the judge, man, it's over. But if you can work things out before you get there, if you can settle before you get there, if you can, can, can come to terms before you get there, there, then you can be reconciled. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen is you're going to come before the judge and some of you are rushing in to see the judge while you've still got anger in your heart, you're bit, uh, harboring resentment against other people, you've caused all kinds of division that they have anger against you and you're rushing into the judge going, God, please... I don't want to have to do anything, but would you just take all that away? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Because truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. When we refuse to forgive and to reconcile with other people, we will be treated in that same way with God. And as I have been looking at this and reading this and thinking about this, I have been thinking both in the preaching of this and in my own life, God, this is so heavy. God, this is so hard. How can I stand up in front of your people and say, this is the bar? God, it's overwhelming. And as I was thinking about that, I went, what if it's light? What if Jesus' burden is light? What if I only think it's heavy? But what if it's actually light? Because as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, Lord, I get angry way too often, and it is so hard for me to go and reconcile to people and ask for their forgiveness. This is really, really difficult. And so the more that I thought about that, the more I I began to understand. But when I do that, then I'm not feeling all of this guilt anymore. Then I'm not holding on to all of this shame anymore. Then I'm actually free to have real, true, spiritual life. What if... This isn't this impossibly high standard that no one can meet, this impossibly heavy load that we have to carry. But what if, in fact, this is the way in which Jesus would have us arrive at true freedom? What if we can finally put down our burdens? 
What if through miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, when we go to be reconciled to our brother and we truly seek to understand their grievances with us and we seek to, um, to be forgiven for those grievances, what if there's actual restoration? What if there's actual healing? What if we actually were that kind of people that instead of being angry, instead of being antagonistic, instead of being enemies and against, what if instead we were the kind of peacemaking, merciful reconcilers who found that this was a place of vibrant life? And the more I began to think about that, the more I thought, this is incredible. When at first I was looking at this and seeing, this is hopeless. Who can meet this standard? The obvious answer is, well, no one can meet that standard. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It was to set us free of our sins. And now he is offering us a new way to live, a kingdom way to live as his people. Fostering life. True life, spiritual life, emotional, relational, spiritual, physical life that he has restored. And then I think, oh God, how awesome are you? How awesome are you? That you would allow me to enter into a place of true freedom. Because which feels more alive? To be stuck with these enemies who hate you? Or to be living without anger? Without the burden of guilt and shame for the wrongs that you have done to other people? And the things that you have done in your anger. The things that you have said. The ways that you have attacked physically or verbally. How awesome that we get to experience that kind of freedom in this place. So I'm going to invite you this morning. Some of you may have, even as I have been talking, been thinking about a specific relationship. A specific person that you either need to forgive or that you need to seek forgiveness from. And I would encourage you, don't let today end without dealing with that. Deal with it. Because the life that Jesus offers is true life. And we are radically for that kind of life here. Let's pray. Lord, we want your life. Lord, would you help us to turn off the voices of anger and division?
Would you help us as the anger rises up within us to, um, through the work of the Holy Spirit, master that? And not allow it to uh, cause us to say and do things that we know we shouldn't, things that we don't even want to do, actually. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of our sin and help us to be the kind of people, the kind of community that is merciful and compassionate and gracious and peacemaking that we might find a new kind of life and joy in this for that not just in this place but in this community would you enable us to live at peace with our neighbors. At peace with us. And so we ask as far as it's possible with us. Would you help us to live at peace with them. That we could not be accused of stoking the fire. Or increasing the division. but instead that we would be the peacemakers. Lord, I ask for the restoration of hearts in this place. That we would not value anger as righteousness. And I pray that as people here repent and seek reconciliation with those that they are at odds with. Lord, I pray that in a supernatural way you would provide healing and restoration. I pray that there would be restoration of relationships. I pray that there would be restoration of souls. And I pray that there would be a restoration of joy where there is currently bitterness And Lord, we know that this is only possible through your supernatural work. And so we ask for it. Amen.